Keep praying for John Davenport and his wife, Marissa. They're going to be here the first week in March, and we are so excited for them and their transition here this upcoming year. Um, One of the things that I remember John saying when we were interviewing him, I love this quote. He said that God moves at the speed of relationships. That's a great quote. Now, of course, God can move as fast as he wants anywhere, anytime. God moves at the speed of light, and even faster than the speed of light, he moves at the speed of his own voice, commanding things to be so. But the point of John giving that quote was to show that the means by which God has decided to build his church in the New Testament age in which we are still living in is through people proclaiming the word to the lost. People who are in the image of his son Jesus Christ, made and saved and transformed and conformed into his likeness to speak and to act and behave in the workplace, in the family, in this lost world for the sake of bringing about the gospel. God moves through the speed of relationships. I think we often overlook how much relationships really impact our lives. Your life is consumed with relationships. If you're stressed right now, there's a very good chance that you are stressed because of some kind of relationship that you have with someone. If you are happy and joyful right now, it is because of some kind of relationship that you have with someone. You have a relationship with everyone, whether it's good or bad, big or small, whether it's the people you work with or go to school with, whether it's the people that you go to church with here at Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, the people that you interact with on your weekly basis, your life is consumed with you relating to people. Therefore, if your life is consumed with relationships, and if relationships is the means by which God intends for his church to proclaim and announce the gospel and for him to build his church, then it is extremely important for us here today every individual, to reflect upon and evaluate the way that we use our relationships for his glory. That's really what Philemon is about. I want you to turn with me to Philemon. As small of a book, or really a letter, as Philemon is, Philemon is really a letter about how Christians should engage in relationships with each other. Remember, Philemon is at the end of your New Testament, right before Hebrews. It's not because it was the last letter written by Paul. It's just because it's the shortest letter, and his letters are ordered from largest to smallest. But you'll remember as you turn to Philemon, only 25 verses, that at the opening of Paul's letter, he doesn't just address his letter to an individual, Philemon, but he also addresses his letter to the church that meets in his house, which very likely could have been the Colossian church, the same church that Paul sent the letter to the Colossians to. So what Paul is going to say to Philemon is not just a practical letter about how Philemon should interact with this runaway slave, but it is a practical situation that Paul is using to illustrate a spiritual reality about how Christians should engage in relationships with each other. In this case, even the relationship between a slave master Christian 
and a runaway slave who is also a Christian. Paul is going to tell those two very different, and you could argue even opposed people, how they, because they are both Christians, should engage in relationship with each other. Paul is both going to command them how to engage in relationship. He's also himself going to model how to engage in relationship with others. And all of it is going to be based on one reality. When you think of Philemon, think of the reality that in Christ we have a new identity. If there was such a big idea for the letter of Philemon, that would be the big idea, that in Christ there is a new identity that we all have. Therefore, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are all a new creation. Therefore, we should not regard others according to the flesh, but according to their new identity in the Spirit. When you think of Philemon, think of a letter about identity and how because of our new identity in Christ that impacts the way that we relate with others. You'll remember my first sermon in this letter where Paul's introduction, every person he names, he relates to them by giving them a new label, by calling them something different other than just who they are on their earthly basis. Philemon is best understood as being broken up into four parts. Perhaps next Sunday I'll put up a slide that shows you that outline. But when you think of Philemon, just think of the introduction, which is verses 1 through 3. Think of the body uh, of the letter, uh, or, or think of the prayer and thanksgiving, which happens from 4 to 7. That's what Pastor John preached on last Sunday, the second part. The third section is going to be Paul's request to Philemon, which is going to be from verses 8 through 22. And then the letter is going to be ended in the final two verses, the final three verses, uh, 23, 24, and 25, with Paul's farewell. That's Philemon, just those four parts. And so now this morning, we are going to divide that middle part, Paul's request, we're going to divide it into two parts. We're going to focus on the first half today, and the second half of Paul's request, we're going to focus on next Sunday. So read along silently with me. I'm going to read the whole text, then I'm going to give us the big idea, and then we're going to break it down. Look at what Paul has to say to Philemon starting in verse 8. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, verse 10, for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But, verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps, we'll end there, we'll start in, end in verse 14. And your big idea for that section is that being in Christ should impact the way that Christians regard both themselves and others. 
That's what we're going to see Paul model here. If you'll notice those verses, verses 8 through 14, you'll notice that Paul focuses on three people. He's first going to focus on himself, then he's going to focus on an Onesimus, then he's going to focus on Philemon. And in each section of today's passage, as he focuses on each person, he is both going to model and to command. He's both going to describe and prescribe how because we are Christians in Christ, that should impact the way that we think about ourselves and also the way that we think about others. It should impact the way that we relate ourselves to each other. So let's look at the first point. The first point is that in Christ, when we have relationships with others, we should regard ourselves with humility. Because you are a Christian, your relationships should be grounded on your humility. You being humble should be a standard that you bring to every relationship that you interact in. We see Paul model this in verse 8 where he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. We talked about humility at the beginning of our series in Philemon, where Paul again called himself a prisoner for Jesus. This is a surprising way for Paul to describe himself because Paul is not just a prisoner for Jesus, he is also an apostle for Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 describes the authority that apostles had during the first century. That we have, that Paul talks about how, as an apostle, he and the other apostles could have made demands upon the local churches. An apostle was either one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, or in Paul's case, he describes himself as one untimely born, one who received the Great Commission along with the disciples who saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. So really, the apostles are the 12 disciples, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, and the apostle Paul added as the 13th. They were given unique authority during the first century, not only to be God's prophets, to speak on behalf of God and to build the church and to write them letters in such a way that their writings were recognized by themselves and others as Scripture. It was also recognized by the churches that received them as Scripture. The apostles were also understood to have authority to make demands upon other local churches. Paul had this authority. And by the way, the role of apostle does not exist today. The role of apostle was given uniquely to these 13 men, and it died with those 13 men. If people come to you claiming to be an apostle, or if a church claims to be an apostolic church, they are making a false claim of their authority. Our authority only comes from God's word. It's not because I claim to be an apostle. It's because I am merely proclaiming what God has shared through the apostles. That's what the church recognized then. That's what the church must recognize today. The, the role of apostle was a role of authority. Yet, even though it was a role of authority, Paul, in this case, did not cash in those chips of authority. 
He could have said, as an apostle Philemon, I can commandeer your slave from you. I can order you. I can demand that you let your slave go and let him work for me, is what Paul could have said as an apostle, and it would have been in his right. And not only that, it would have been the proper thing to do. That word that you see at the end of verse 8, to do what is required, is better understood as that which is fitting, that which is proper, that which is right to let a slave go. This is another indication that the Bible is truly anti-slavery, that, 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 that they understand uh, the freedom of slaves as a good and fitting thing. But instead of Paul using his authority to domineer over others, he instead chooses to present himself humbly, instead asking Philemon to consider this in his letter for the sake of love. Not only that, Paul, instead of calling himself an apostle, he describes himself as an old man. Paul is not an old man at this time. He's probably middle-aged, as best we can tell, 40s and 50s. So young, middle-aged man is what we see here. Yet he describes himself as, as an elderly person. He doesn't need to do that, yet he chooses to do that to present himself with humility for the sake of encouraging Philemon, not to butter him up, but to encourage him as a brother in Christ to treat Onesimus with kindness. You know, the reality is that Paul is going to want Philemon to be humble towards Onesimus. So Paul models that by being humble towards Philemon. Like the parable of the two debtors, one was forgiven much, but then he held the other debtor you know, in his clutches for owing him little. Paul is, in a sense, master over Philemon, and he's not using that mastery. Because, even though Philemon is master over Onesimus, Paul wants to encourage him not to lord over Onesimus as his earthly master. All of this models what the Bible commands of Christians that we should not think too highly of ourselves, as Romans chapter 12 tells us. Romans 12, verse 3, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but with sober judgment. Another great example is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This world is so lost, everyone. This world that we live in is so dark. There is so much foolishness that we see in the world. It's very easy for us to see that wickedness and that foolishness and to become haughty as a result when we engage in relationships with the lost. To laugh at them, to, to, to look at how stupid their ideas are, which, frankly, they, they often are. But, but to use that to, to think of ourselves too highly, to look down our nose at people when really we should be praying for them. We should be sharing truth with them. We should be loving them in a way that is reflecting of what God commands of love and truth to these people. We should not use our Christianity and our holding of the truth as a way of thinking that we are better than others because we are only saved by God's grace. We only put our faith in Jesus Christ because God, by his graciousness, opened our eyes and softened our heart to make us even realize we need to put our faith in him to begin with. It is all of grace. So the way that we interact with others, 
both outside and within the walls of Christianity, to reflect what Paul is doing, not using our status as Christians to lord over people, but to walk humbly in the way that we interact with others and recognize that we also are lost and wicked, but that Christ redeemed us through his death and resurrection. Let's now look at the second point. The second point is that in Christ, we should regard believers with affection. So Paul is now shifting. He focused on himself, describing himself with humility in his relationship with Philemon. Now he's going to talk about Onesimus, and he's going to talk about Onesimus and describe Onesimus in a way that models brotherly affection amongst Christians. See how Paul continues to do this in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. I urge you. I exhort you. This is a very positive word that Paul is using. I encourage you concerning my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Look at the emotional language that Paul uses to describe this slave. A slave who was not seen as being a person legally in the Roman Empire. As one who did not have rights. As one who was not to be valued as a free person. But simply a living machinery that was owned simply for the task of doing work and was looked down upon. That's the worldly way of how the Roman Empire would see slaves, this bottom-of-the-bottom status. Yet Paul describes this lowly slave as a son. He says that he became a son to me, and and Paul even says that he was like a father to Onesimus. This is rare language. Paul doesn't use this for everyone. He used it for only a couple other people. He used it individually for Timothy. We see this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. Other places in the letters, he also describes Timothy as a beloved son in the faith. We see Paul also describe Titus this way in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He uses a special language of calling this young man his, his son, his true child in the faith in Christ. But that's Timothy and Titus. I mean, they were planting churches, and Titus went all the way down to Creed, and and they were doing these amazing things for the Lord. Onesimus also, though, is called a son of Paul. And Paul describes his relationship with him as one of a father. We see Paul also model that in Galatians chapter 4.18, generally when he's talking to the churches. When he writes to the Galatians, in a loving way, he describes them as my little children. Perhaps the biblical author who's most famous for doing this is actually the Apostle John. If you read his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, some of the Gospel of John, you will see again and again he addresses his audience as, my children, my children, my children. 3 John chapter 4 talks about how he is joyed that his children, referring to the people receiving his letters, are walking in the truth. This is an amazing thing that Paul is doing. 
we also, as Christians, should have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about your church family right now sitting here in the room. Think about the people that you're going to see come through the front doors that are going to be here for second service. Do you have affection for them? Do you care for them? Do you love them? Do you see them as part of your spiritual family? Or do you just see them as other people who happen to walk through the same doors as you? It is so important that Christians show the love of Christ in the way that they show love for each other. They will know we are Christians by our love. And that applies especially to local congregations. Notice here that the, the, the second point here, talking about affection, is an affection that occurs to other believers, an affection that exists between one Christian to another. Don't forget that the foundation of Paul's love, it's not that he would have hated Onesimus if he wasn't a Christian. It's not that he would have sinned against Onesimus and looked down his nose at him if he wasn't a Christian. But his affection, this relationship between him and a slave is on the basis of both of them being in Christ. The fact that Onesimus had apparently become a Christian after running away from Philemon and that he had been working in the gospel in Christ alongside Paul. There should be a special relationship between Christians and other Christians that is different between your relationship with other not, with, uh, non-Christians. Sometimes people, you'll hear people say that, well, we're all God's children. You'll, you'll hear people describe that. Sometimes uh, people with a liberal bent or when they're trying to promote some kind of social justice or a secular ideology, they'll say, well, we're all God's children. That is not true. The Bible does not describe all people as all being God's children. We're all made in the image of God. We are all created by God. We all will stand before God as judge, but we all come into this world as enemies of God. Don't let anyone tell you we're all God's children. John says, John chapter 1, verse 13, that as many as received him, Jesus Christ, who called upon his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's such a powerful thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 talks about that as well. The Spirit bears himself witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. The reason why we can call other Christians brother or sister is because we recognize that together we are children of God. Are your relationships with Christians prioritized over your relationship with non-believers? They should be. You should think of your love and affection for people in Christ in a way that is special and unique and greater than your unsaved friends. It doesn't mean that we can't have unsaved friends. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't interact with unsaved people. It doesn't even mean that we shouldn't love and spend time with unsaved family members. But an unsaved family member has less in common with you than someone who is in Christ, your brother or sister. That's why Jesus, when he said to follow me, you have to be willing to even hate your own mother and father. 
doesn't mean that you have this sinful hate towards your family members, but it recognizes that being part of the family of God, having a relationship with God means that you are now separate from the world in the way you relate to them, and that you have a unique, special opportunity to relate to brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones that you would have never interacted with, like Onesimus, had it not been for you being joined together with the gospel. That's what I want this church to be like. I want people to come to Grand Emanuel Baptist Church and be struck by how much people love each other within these walls. To be struck by how much the church family loves to be together and to encourage each other and to sing with each other here at church. This is what Paul models in his letter to Philemon. Affection for other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll read just this one verse to you. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul encourages the Corinthians to widen their heart to each other. I think that's a great application verse for what, for what we're looking at here. That we as Christians should be willing to widen our heart to our church family, to open up our heart, to spend more time with each other, to go to that small group, to go to that Bible study, to talk to that person on the other side of the auditorium during greeting time to open our heart to other believers in Christ because they are our spiritual family. And then finally, the third point. Paul's talked about himself. He's talked about Onesimus. Now he's going to address Philemon. And the third point is that in Christ, we should also regard authority with respect. Despite Paul's humility, despite his affection for Onesimus, his desire that Onesimus be freed and allowed to serve with Paul for the sake of the gospel as an equal. Despite all of that, Paul, even though he is an apostle, is still submitting himself to Philemon's earthly role of authority as owner and master over Onesimus. Look at what's said here in verse 13. Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. There's two key words here that are so telling of the way that Paul sees slavery and the way that Paul understands Philemon's role as slave master. He says that he would love for Onesimus to serve with him, in verse 13, on Philemon's behalf. Uh, the, the really, another way of putting this, the, the, the literal way would be under him. Hooper, that, that, that word is under. Paul is saying that I would love for Onesimus to serve with me under you while I am still in prison. He also says in verse 14 that he prefers to do nothing without Philemon's consent. This is so crucial because Philemon, this letter is showing us that Paul has bigger fish to fry than just the social justice gospel of saying that Onesimus should be emancipated. In fact, he's not even really requesting that. He's acknowledging that Onesimus is still Philemon's slave. He recognizes that he's still under Philemon's authority, 
he recognizes that he still needs Philemon's consent as slave master over Onesimus. He chooses, Paul does, to acknowledge those things. What Paul wants, even though Philemon has that earthly authority over him, Paul wants Philemon to treat Onesimus with affection and for Philemon to regard himself with humility. He wants Philemon to allow Onesimus to be treated as an equal brother among the congregation. He wants Philemon to be open to, even if it's under his authority, to allow Onesimus to leave the home and to serve and work with Paul to the ends of the earth. Paul is still acknowledging Philemon's authority here. He humbly submits himself to that role. That doesn't mean that the Bible is supporting slavery. It doesn't mean that it's endorsing the institution of slavery. But it does recognize that there is a call to Christians to recognize the earthly institutions that God has put in place, even if they are not perfect institutions, which guess what? They never are. This is what God's word has to say about submitting to earthly authority. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to Titus to remind them, the Christians at Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, not for their sake, not for your own sake, but be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, who, by the way, this was referring to Nero, who would dress up as animals and commit terrible acts, who would uh, do horrendous uh, acts of martyrdom against Christians, even to the emperor, is what Peter says, as supreme. Even in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, you'll remember that when Paul gives instructions for how we should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that even slaves should still obey their earthly masters and should do so heartily. Earthly masters were not always Christians like Philemon was. They weren't always good. Yet, God still calls Christians to submit to the earthly authorities that he has put under them. It's easy to come up with all the yeah buts, well, yeah, but what about this and what about that? Well, what about what's happening here? What about what's happening there? God knows and God is still king. God is still going to judge and fix those things. God is still Lord even over our earthly masters. As Americans, we get to partake in a republic, meaning that we do have a duty as citizens to democratically take, play, uh, uh, take a role in the rulers that we choose and the laws and policies that we can give for ourselves, we should do that. Those are good things. But we must also understand that the institutions over us have for a time temporarily been placed there by God and that they also will be subject to him as master. Therefore, in our relationships, especially with authority, a boss, an elder, someone who is in charge of a project that we're working on, a teacher or a professor, whether good or bad or somewhere in between, we should honor and submit ourselves to those people as we would to submit to God in Christ for his glory. These three things, humility in ourselves, 
affection towards other believers, and submission to authority should be the foundation of which we use to engage in our relationships. We see Paul model that here. We see him command Philemon, really encourage, exhort Philemon to do the same. The question is, is will we do it? Will we take these verses seriously or just as niceties? Oh, well, yes, that's nice, Pastor Stephen. Yes, we should be humble. And then we go home and we're not humble. Oh, okay, yes, that's all. What a good reminder, Pastor Stephen. We should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with affection and then still show up the next Sunday, sit in the same exact place, talk to the same exact five people, not pray for each other, not reach out to each other. Oh, yes, yes, we should be submissive to authority, but not that authority, not that authority. Are we just going to come up with exceptions? Are we just going to nod our head and say, wow, this is very nice. These are good reminders. Thank you. Or are we going to see this as God's word commanded for us? A demand saying, this is what Christians do. This is how Christians act. And these are the kind of Christians that God uses to build his church. I want to be a church full of Christians that God uses to build his church. Do you? This is what those Christians look like. Let's pray.